If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to today's scripture reading. It's found in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It's Romans 1, starting at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 14. Before we read that text together, I'd love to just reflect on one word in particular. Um, words carry weight, but this word carries a lot of weight. The word martyr Now, I don't know if you know that the word martyr, the original word in Koine Greek, did not mean what it means today. What it originally meant, martyria, was simply the word for witness. Martyr was a legal term. It was used in ancient Greece to describe someone who was testifying in the court of law. They were providing evidence. They were bearing witness. This was of a living person. But today, obviously, if you look in a dictionary, you, you look up the definition of martyr, you're going to see that this is referring to someone who is dead, someone who has passed. So the question for me, in my interest for words, is what, when was the shift? When did martyr go from being someone who is alive, who is giving witness and testimony and evidence in the court of law, to someone who is deceased? And if you don't know much church history, you do know that at the beginning in the first century of the church, especially in the first three centuries after Christ's resurrection and ascension, there were many martyrs, those who bore witness of Christ's perfect life, death on the cross, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, and they suffered for bearing witness to the gospel. Many lost their lives. But it wasn't just those men and women in the the early first few centuries. From the first century of the church to the 21st century, people have suffered and died for preaching the gospel. The world seems to be growing more and more hostile to the message of salvation that is in Christ alone. The exclusivity of salvation that is found in Christ alone. But friends, I want to remind you that there are many more people who have borne witness of the true God and suffered and died for it, going back beyond the time that Christ was walking the earth. The Old Testament saints, who had a forward-looking faith at the Christ, the Messiah to come, they bore witness and suffered and some died. Hebrews 11 speaks of the blood trail. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
for people who, listen to this, speak, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He goes on, the author of Hebrews, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Egypt or elsewhere, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews goes on, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in half. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Why do I, why do I open our time reflecting on these martyrs, these saints of old? I want us to be reminded before we read this text that there have been many who have gone before us in all boldness with the gospel. And one day, God willing, you and I will get to meet them. And I pray that when we do, we would have zero regrets for living silently on our short-term mission trip. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Unashamed of the Gospel. Please turn with me. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now I want to provide a little context for where we are in this letter, 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy, his young adult disciple, his protege in the faith. He, 
He's a young man that Paul loves dearly. He loves him like a son. Paul's writing 2 Timothy in a prison cell in Rome. Paul is awaiting execution for boldly bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is an outspoken witness, and that's why he is imprisoned for it. What Paul is calling Timothy to do here, and what I would encourage us to embrace as well, is not something that Paul was not willing to do himself. He is encouraging Timothy to continue in faithful gospel ministry, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to suffer the opposition, the hostility, the rejection to varying degrees, and to guard the gospel to the very end. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's guaranteed. It doesn't mean that you're going to end up in a prison cell. It doesn't mean that you're going to end up as a martyr. But it does mean that if you are living a godly life in Christ Jesus, that you will experience rejection from this world. Timothy, it appears, had become a little apathetic, a little fearful, a little anxious. And let me be honest, he had reasons to be. And so Paul is writing this this young man who's a little timid right now to press on in this hard work and to endure suffering for it. Timothy is experiencing difficulties inside and outside the church at the time. Okay, so inside the church, what's happening? You've got corrupt theology. You've got poor leadership. Outside the church, what's happening? Emperor Nero is in charge at this time. He's hosting garden parties that are lit up by the burning bodies of Christians on the stake. This is a scary time to bear witness to the gospel. This young man needed encouragement. I think we need encouragement. It's a tough time to be a Christian when Paul's writing Timothy. And yet, in every age, in every generation, God calls men and women to himself and he sends them out to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will be different varying levels and degrees of suffering and hostility and opposition that we experience from generation to generation. And yet we have been called by his grace, not just to gather and worship him, that is foundational, but to scatter and return, having shared his gospel with the lost and dying world. That is our holy calling. The question for us this morning is simply this. Will this generation be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will those of us in this room this morning, in this little corner of McKinney, Texas, live unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? The question is this, will we be courageous and speak the truth in all love and compassion and suffer for it? Or will we be cowards 
and sh- stay shamefully silent. Stay safe. My first exhortation for us this morning is do not be ashamed of the gospel. And it comes from verse 8. It's an imperative. Look at it. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Pretty clear. Now, I'm going to ask a ridiculous question, okay? But bear with me. Why? Like, why should I not be ashamed of the gospel? What reason do I have to not be ashamed of the gospel? It's a ridiculous question, but we need to ask that question because it's going to help us be more and more unashamed of the gospel. Now, immediately our minds might go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which is a beautiful text where Paul writes his reason. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's a legitimate reason to be unashamed of the gospel, that it is the only message that has the power to take a spiritual corpse and give them new life in Christ. Period. It's the only message. It is the powerful message that saves. But verse 8 starts with therefore. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And that therefore is therefore a reason. It's, it's saying something has just been said previously. There's at least been one reason, if not more, as to why we should be unashamed of the gospel now and for the rest of our lives. And, and I see five here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 1. Paul refers to the gospel as the promise of life. So the first reason to be unashamed is this is a life-giving message. I think if we're not careful, familiarity can breed contempt. And John chapter 3, verse 16, it can lose the gravity, its significance that this is a life-giving message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. I only have one son. He's he's my one and only. He's my beloved son. I, I can't say that I'm willing to give him up for the most righteous person in the land, okay? And yet God Almighty has given up his only son that the son willingly submitted to the will of the Father to save wretched sinners, God so loved this world that he gave his only son. And that whoever puts their faith in him will have life, not just life extended, not just 50 or 60 or 100 more years, but eternal life. Whoa. Significant. This is a life-giving message. Nothing to be ashamed of there. It holds the promise of life. Second reason that I see is in verse 2. This is a message of grace and mercy and peace. Ephesians 2 reminds us that though we were dead in sin, it says, but God being rich in mercy. Mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There it is. Mercy. Grace. And then Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with God is not something you know. 
it's not something that we have with God by default. It is something that the precious blood of Christ paid for. He earned it. He earned reconciliation with God. Nothing to be ashamed of. This is a message, thirdly, that we need not be ashamed of because it is a message to be believed, not earned. Look at verse 5 in in chapter 1. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He's talking about Timothy's sincere faith. It's It's not just a professing Christianity faith. It's not nominalism. It's legit. It is sincere. It has integrity. It is real. It bears fruit. It's legitimate. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. But what I love is that it goes on and it it speaks of the faith by which we've been saved. It says, this is not your own doing. So if we were were thinking like, well, grace, yes, I've been saved by grace and, and mercy. And then, you know, then there's a faith bit. But that's a little bit more. I own that a little bit more. He He reminds us, he says, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Meaning, if if you're here and you have put your faith in Christ, the faith that was given to put your faith in Christ was by God. It was a gift. Grace and faith are a gracious gift from God. He says, it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. This is a message to be believed, not earned. And all who believe, believe by God's grace. That faith is a gift. Nothing to be ashamed of there. Fourth reason I see is in verse 6 in chapter 1. This is a message that brings gifts. Now you might be thinking, look, that, that was sufficient gifts right there. I mean, grace, mercy, peace, a message to be received by faith, not by works, eternal life. And yet, Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in him. And there's some scholarly debates here. Is it referring to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? Is it referring to spiritual gifts? I think there's good arguments for both. I kind of see both. But I do think that when you continue reading the letter, he is saying you need to awaken the spiritual gift that you were entrusted with to use For the glory of God and the edification of his church, preaching, teaching, evangelism, in particular for Timothy. But whatever it is for you, because the day that we were born again, that we believed in Christ, we received that message. We received at least one spiritual gift on that spiritual birthday. And we're to use it for the glory of God. Romans 12 says something so beautiful. Verse 4 through 6, it says this. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We're different. So we, though many, are one in Christ, individually, members one of another. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them. There's not a single person who's a member of Christ Redeemer Church who is not as vitally important for the health and the edification and the glory of God as another. Let us use the spiritual gifts we've been given 
We need not be ashamed of the gospel. Fifthly, I see in verse 7, because it is a message of the nearness of God. Again, something that if we're not careful, we could overlook the significance, the nearness of God. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in us for the glory of God, for the good of his church, and for the sake of the lost. That we would go out, sure, with some fear and trembling and trepidation, but that we would have a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control who would lead us and guide us and speak through us as we engage the lost and dying world. So those are great reasons to not be ashamed of the gospel, just leading up to verse, the verse 8 where we're at. But Paul goes further than that. He says, don't be ashamed of me either. A minister of the gospel. But he says something interesting. He, doesn't, he, he says, nor of me, his prisoner. He's not talking about Nero. He, he's not talking about some man who has some authority temporarily on earth. He's speaking of Christ. And so I don't want us to miss this. Paul views himself more as a prisoner of Christ in that prison cell in Rome than of Nero or anyone else. And this is because Paul's heart has been taken captive by Christ. He's captivated by Christ. He is in prison because of his love for Christ. And he loves Christ because he understands Christ's love for him. That's what causes our love for Jesus to soar, is when we grow in an intimate, not, not just facts, but an intimate knowledge through the word of God that God has loved us perfectly in his son. That God wants to save us more than we want to be saved. That God is eager to forgive us when we stumble and fall more than we're willing to receive forgiveness. He is good. He loves us. Jesus was on trial once. Jesus suffered for being outspoken of the truth. He was the embodiment of truth. And I see an interesting connection between Paul's suffering and his imprisonment and just Jesus being on trial with Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 19, I want you to think about this. You don't have to turn there, but just hear this. Pontius Pilate, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And the prophecy is fulfilled like a sheep before his shears. He remained silent. But then Pilate said something else. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? And then Jesus decides it's time to break the silence. And this is what he says. He turns to Pontius Pilate and he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Jesus is saying, Pontius Pilate, you're not in charge. My father is in charge. 
And it was our will from the very beginning, the triune God took counsel together and decided to go on this rescue mission for the glory of God, for the good of mankind, for his praise to echo in eternity future forever. You're not in charge, Pontius Pilate. But Jesus remained mostly silent on death row. And brothers and sisters, he would have been the perfect defense attorney, okay? If you ever got in some trouble and you needed the defense attorney, you called Christ, he was the embodiment of wisdom. But he remained silent. Why? So that we would remain silent? No, sir. So that we'd be so filled with love, like Paul, so filled with awe that God, a holy God, would send his own son and crush him and raise him up from the dead for our justification that nothing could hold us back from preaching the gospel individually, as families, as a church community. Let us not be silent. Let us speak. We cannot be silent. It is our responsibility to preach. Paul's not someone to be ashamed of. Paul's someone to be proud of. He's someone to imitate in faith and love. The gospel is not something to be embarrassed by. It's something to be emboldened by. Maybe you've asked the question, how do I get the courage to share the gospel? That's a legitimate question. That's a reasonable question. How do I get the courage to share the gospel? I'm going to tell you right now, by reflecting on the gospel. That's it. By being in the word of God, by by being filled with the spirit, saturated with the gospel. Friends, by putting yourself in a human Ziploc baggie and just marinating in the grace of God and Christ. And then you open up that baggie and just let loose. You will see that your love for God has gone up. You will see that your love for neighbor has gone up. You will see that your fear of speaking the truth and love to a world that's hostile to the gospel has gone down. Maybe not completely gone, but enough for you to take a step out your front door and speak to your neighbor of Christ. Faithful gospels, uh, gospel ministers like Paul should not embarrass us. They should encourage us. Maybe you've seen street preachers and you've shaken your head and just gone, oh, what a shame. That's not how you win people to Christ. Well, I'd love to hear your method. And listen, I'm not saying all street preachers are faithful. I've heard some bad ones, okay? But I'm saying maybe we shouldn't be so ashamed of those men or those women at times. Maybe we should sit and listen and linger and see if they're preaching the true gospel and suffering for it and encourage them, pray for them, be a part of that ministry. How do you get the courage to share the gospel? By reflecting on the gospel. How else? By looking to those who courageously shared the gospel, like Paul and many others, and suffered for it. Which brings me to my second point, the end of verse eight. Suffer for the gospel. This is an imperative. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So here's another kind of crazy question, but how do we suffer for the gospel? How do we suffer for the gospel? I don't want you to leave 
this room questioning that. How? I want to make it very clear. There's two things in particular. The first thing I want you to see is this, by the power of God. So, meaning, not in your strength, but by in the power of God, by the Holy Spirit. That's a, that is how you suffer for the gospel. But how we suffer for the gospel, specifically, uniquely, the, the type of suffering that Paul's referring to is a result of something. Preaching the gospel. And not all are called to stand in a pulpit and preach before God and the congregation. And that's okay. We all have different functions within the body of Christ. But we are all called, whether we have the gift of evangelism or not, to evangelize and to make, the all dis- make disciples of all nations. We are called to go out. Paul explicitly says why he suffered. He says, share in suffering, verse 8. Then, verse 11 and 12, look at this. He says why he shared, why he shared in suffering. I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. An apostle, apostolos, that word means messenger or sent out one. Granted, the apostles are all long gone, okay? If, if you ever hear someone say, I'm, I'm the apostle such and such, that you can immediately walk away from that church, okay? The apostles were those who were specifically appointed by Christ. They saw the resurrected Christ. They had a very unique ministry for a very short temporary time. But while there are no more apostles, and you're not an apostle and I'm not an apostle, we are ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We are messengers. We we are to go out with the message. Paul says, I'm a preacher. That means a proclaimer of the message. A preacher is someone who brings the gospel. The gospel must be brought. But friends, the gospel must also be taught. Which is why it's great to have a passionate preacher who's preaching the gospel. But if he's not able to exposit it, if he's not able to walk through and exegete, what does the gospel mean that Christ came and lived a perfect life and died for my sin? What sin? Or that he rose from the dead, victorious. If if you're not teaching the gospel, then... We'll see how that lands when it's just broad. It must be taught. But I do want you to be comforted by something. Paul is not some weird masochist guy that's just like, man, he just takes pleasure in pain. He's not, okay? He's talking about a unique form of suffering. He's not commending that you go look for a fight. He's not commending that we experience generic form of suffering. You're going to experience that in a broken, fallen world. You have And I have. What Paul is encouraging is that we would share in suffering for the gospel by sharing the gospel. That's specifically what he's trying to get at here. Again, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And So by the nature of having holy lives and holy lips in the midst of an unholy world, We will suffer for Christ's sake. In John 15, Jesus says something interesting. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I I just love that. Jesus is literally saying, don't take it so personally. You know, just, it's not a personal affront. It's because I'm in you and you're in me and, and so, and you're in the world. 
And so I was treated with hostility, and, and you will too. And Jesus was perfect. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says this. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Talk about an upside down world, right? Insulted, you're blessed. Rejoice in suffering. But he says you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as an evildoer or as a meddler. And then he says this in verse 16, chapter 4, 1 Peter, listen. If, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, it's a very specific form of suffering, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In that name. That name was first brought into being in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. That's the first time we see it used. It was used as an insult by the Gentiles in Syrian Antioch. Christian. Christian. Little anointed ones. Little Christs. Not that we are Christ, but that we are in Christ as his representatives. Rejoice in that name. Suffer in that name. Don't be ashamed of that title. Be amazed, friends, that God has qualified you by the blood of his Son to be called a saint, holy one, to be called a Christian. We are like candles individually that come together and light up, again, this little corner of, of McKinney, Texas, for the glory of God. The world will attempt to extinguish your flame and this flame. But even if they take our lives, Christ has promised eternal life. And we have centuries of church history to look back on to see that when the church, individuals, families, whole communities suffered persecution for the gospel, that what happened to the gospel? That it advanced. So take courage. Between the, the exhortations in, in verse 8, to share in suffering for the gospel, and verse 11 and 12, explaining why Paul suffered specifically by sharing the gospel, we have something beautiful. It's the gospel. Look at verse 9 and 10. Let's just savor this together. Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us. What a beautiful reminder. We could not save ourselves, and so he took the initiative. We did not, we did not initiate reconciliation with God. God initiated reconciliation with us by sending Christ. And he didn't just save us by calling us to himself. He has saved us. He's brought us in and then he's called us to go out. He's commanded us to go out. We must go out and then come back in. It is a holy calling, he says. 
And we haven't been recruited for this holy calling because of us. In the same way that when God saved us, he didn't save us because of our works. He didn't save us because of our righteousness, but because of his goodness. Because of his grace and his his holy love and his mercy. And so in the same way, he doesn't send us out or recruit us for gospel ministry because we're so great or we're so gifted or we're so wise or we're so strong. He calls us to a holy calling because of his purpose, because of his grace. He takes people who are fear and trembling, stuttering, and he sends them out like Moses, and he's glorified through it. So if you're here this morning, you're going, not me, can't do it. I'm saying if he has brought you in, and you are positionally righteous in the sight of God, he is calling you to go out, and you will see the power of God as you go out in fear, in trembling, full of the Spirit, with another brother or sister in Christ. Commission, together. The Great Commission. This was planned and purposed in Christ, it says, before the ages began. Before anything was created, God chose to save some who would go out that others might be saved whom he had chosen to be saved. I love that. I I loved Reformed theology. It, It gives me such an urgency to evangelize knowing that there's guaranteed success. And I know that there will be some who reject and there will be some, by God's grace, who respond positively. It's not up for us to know who are to be saved. It is up for us to go. And it goes on. Verse 10. Which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. He came, He lived for us. Friends, He came and represented us perfectly. We were meant as the Imago Dei to reflect God's glory. And yet we've all fallen short of that. Amen? But God sent his own son who put on bone and flesh and blood and lived a perfect human life. He loved God perfectly. He loved his neighbor perfectly. He did everything perfectly. He represented us perfectly. He he was manifest. He appeared in the flesh Fully God and yet fully man. And then, after living a perfect life, 30 some years, says that he abolished death. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word abolish in the original language is katargo. And that's what that means literally translated is to render inoperative. To render inoperative. It doesn't mean that death no longer exists. Unfortunately, it continues to exist and persist. And yet, the hope that we have in Christ, in Christ, death has lost its sting. Death is no longer a threat. Death is no longer... The enemy it once was. Death is no longer the end. It's the doorway to eternal life. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 58. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that he's quoting from Isaiah and Hosea, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's like a taunt. Where is your sting? Now, you've probably played Pac-Man at some point, I hope. It's an amazing game. The best games are the simple games. And you've seen that Pac-Man's coming through, then all of a sudden it's eating up those, whatever they are, the fruit and things that are dancing around. Christ's death and resurrection from the dead has abolished death. It's rendered it inoperative. It's just swallowed it up and then continued on. He says this, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying we can go out unafraid of death, enduring suffering, because we know something. We know what's coming. We know that our labor, taking the gospel out and suffering, is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. It's probably the best use of our time at times is going and sharing the gospel and suffering for it. And so I ask you this morning, have you ever suffered for the gospel? And I mean it. I want you to, I want you to think about it because you probably have in more ways than you're even aware of right now. I want you to think about this. Have you ever experienced rejection because of Christ? Have you ever been uninvited or not included or excluded, left off the guest list because of Christ? I have. I'm sure you have. Have you ever been mocked, insulted, slandered, laughed at, sneered at, called names because of Christ? Goody-goody, prude, radical, super-religious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, Jesus freak, weirdo, strange, ignorant, naive, foolish. If that's you, if you fall into one or more of those categories, I want to encourage you to rejoice. If you've suffered for the gospel, rejoice. It's a command. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that is an evidence that they are on their way to heaven, that they have this sincere faith that, that Timothy possessed, that they are going out boldly and proclaiming the gospel. It's just one evidence that they have hope of life to come, the kingdom of heaven. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Being slandered, being gossiped, being, being talked about in a negative way, is, it, that, that's no lesser form of, of suffering. That is a very real form of experiencing rejection and persecution from this world. He says this, rejoice and be glad. That's how we're to respond. For your reward is great in heaven. And then he says, he says this, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
the prophets. Who were the prophets? Those who spoke the word that God gave them boldly, unashamedly, and suffered for it. But if you're here this morning and, and you have not suffered for the gospel to any extent, I want you to reflect. I'm not coming down on you. I just want you to just take a moment of self-examination and reflection this morning and this afternoon and just ask yourself, seriously, am I a follower of Jesus? Do the people around me know that I follow Jesus? Is my life still about me or is it about Jesus? Have I been playing things safe for my sake and not for Jesus's? Does my social media platform or platforms exalt me or Jesus? Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, meaning we have an inheritance coming, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, comma, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's just saying here, he's saying that suffering will come along. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will endure some suffering. That's the Bible. Jesus once said this in Luke 9. He said, if anyone would come after me, he's he's saying, if anyone would come and follow me, come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then he says this, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. My my exhortation for us is to live unashamed of the gospel now. Friends, as you suffer for the gospel now, do so by the power of God. That's what verse 8 says. By the power of God, not in your strength, but in the strength of Christ. The year was 1415, and the great reformer and pastor in Prague, John Huss, was not ashamed of the gospel. He was arrested and sentenced to burn at the stake for preaching the true gospel in a generation that was hostile to the gospel. And it's recorded that as the flames engulfed his body, that John Huss quoted Psalm 25 too, a prayer, a plea. Oh my God, in thee I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. That's what, that's what he proclaimed as he was burning alive at the stake. John Huss was not afraid of dying. John Huss knew what was coming. John Huss was afraid of being ashamed of Christ on his way to meet him face to face. 
To be ashamed of the gospel is to stay silent and safe. To be unashamed of the gospel is to speak the truth and love and suffer for identifying with Christ. Here's my last point, we'll close. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Look at verse 12b. Paul says, But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew God. He knew him intimately. He didn't just have right theology or right doctrine. His doctrine was living. It was sound doctrine that led led to sound living. He was not ashamed because he knew God's goodness. He knew God's faithfulness. He knew God's grace. He knew God's son. He says, I'm not ashamed of him whom I have believed in. And what's interesting is that word believed in, pistuo, is in the perfect tense, which means it started when? On the Damascus Road. When, I mean, we're talking 180, right? Christian terrorist, terrorizing Christians to being the greatest missionary for Christ of all time. So that was the beginning of the pistuo, of, of his faith, of his sincere faith and belief. But he's saying, it's perfect tense, meaning it's continued. It, it, even in this prison cell, even in his suffering, he knows whom he has believed and he's trusting him to the bitter end. Not knowing the exact number of days left, but knowing that they are coming short. That it's going to be coming soon. But it's interesting, he says, his confidence in guarding the gospel is not in him, it's in God. It's in God's ability. And the word there, able, is the same word where we get dynamite from. Dunatas. It's it's speaking not just of, oh yeah, God's capable. It's saying he is powerfully able to guard the gospel until Christ comes. And that word guard, it's a military term. It's used frequently of when a soldier is on watch and that soldier is accountable with his own life to guard that which has been entrusted to his care. And so it's very interesting because what he's saying here in, the, in how we are to guard the gospel is less about defending it, okay? I love apologetics. I think we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us. I'm all for it. But here, what I want you to understand is that guarding the gospel is less about defending it. It'll defend itself. The word of God, let it out. Like a lion coming out of a cage, okay? It's about preserving it. Guarding the gospel is about preservation. So if we're called to guard the gospel as a church, as individuals, as families, how do we preserve the gospel? How do we guard the gospel? Like soldiers in Christ, we guard the gospel by going out boldly, preaching the gospel, enduring suffering for it, and coming back to fellowship to be encouraged, to have our wounds mended and bound, to get a cold drink of water, and to get back in the game. We guard the gospel with our lives. Let us be unashamed of the gospel. The painful reality is this. 
you and I have probably lived more of our life ashamed of the gospel than we would care to admit. I know I can say that. But the wonderful news this morning for you and I is that Christ is a redeemer. He's, he is a redeemer. He wants to take the wasted time and redeem it. He wants our lives from now and moving forward to be more glorifying to him than yesterday or 10 years ago or 10 months ago or 10 days ago. He is Christ the Redeemer. We see this very clearly through Peter's story, don't we? Jesus is under trial. He's about to be crucified. Peter's around a little campfire with a few people and they ask him, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And he denies it. Not once, not twice, three times, just as Christ said he would. And after Christ is crucified and buried, Peter said, you know what, I'm out on vocational ministry. I'm, I don't deserve to be an apostle. He's, I'm going to go back to being a professional fisherman. He got back on a boat. He was supposed to continue fishing for men, but he's, he's fishing for fish. And Christ resurrected he pursued Peter. He restored Peter. How? Gently, lovingly, he asked Peter three questions. Do you love me? Oh gosh, don't ask me that. You know I do. Do you love me? You know all things. Do you love me? Yes, you know, you know, you know. He restored him three times. A man who I cannot even imagine how being riddled with guilt and shame for denying him in Christ's darkest hour. But this is who Jesus is. He is a redeemer. And because Jesus showed Peter grace as a model for us and restored him back to faithful gospel ministry after he failed to boldly identify with Christ to a few people, what do we see a few weeks after Christ's resurrection, ascension? We see Peter fearlessly proclaiming the gospel. You almost got a question, is that the same Peter? Not with a few people around a fire, but because the fire of the Holy Spirit had come to them at Pentecost, this man is now preaching with a new life, new boldness, and, and is with a great crowd, thousands of people in Jerusalem. Acts 4, 19, listen to this. After being told to be silent by the authorities, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let it be true for us. Let's pray. Father, simple prayer. We, we pray that you would Help us to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unashamed of those who suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd show us more of your grace, that we, by your strength and the power of your Holy Spirit, may proclaim the gospel boldly, endure suffering, and guard the gospel for the next generation. Amen.